0: Heavenly Father, we are thankful we're back in Isaiah tonight. We're thankful, Father, we have a chance to finish first Isaiah and uh, prepare for a short break. And uh, Father, I pray that tonight as we've uh, devoted ourselves in time and an effort to come back into your word, that we would uh, likewise, Father, be uh, ready to receive what you've brought tonight before us. Uh, in so many ways, Father, the, the study of your word uh, can lead us to slip into a pattern of simply seeing it as a homework assignment or as something we... We fill our heads with, Father, I pray we'd never come to your word in that way, tonight especially. I pray, Father, we would just have a, a heart that knows you are here to speak with us, that your word is your instrument, but your spirit, Father, is living and amongst us and capable of, of uh, opening the scriptures to us in a way that no one else can. We look forward to that tonight. Father, may it uh, speak to us each individually in some way that you prefer so that we may be uh, convicted of sin if necessary, drawn closer to you. and and uh, prepared Father, for the work you have before us in ministry. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, tonight, as I've said, we're going to finish 1st Isaiah. So 1st Isaiah was 1 through 39. 2nd Isaiah is 40 through 66. We come to that division because, as you'll see in the text, there are different stories to, an ex- to a certain extent. Next time when we get together, I'll go through a- an analysis of the differences between 1st and 2nd Isaiah. So we'll put that off till we come back. But tonight, we're at the end of 36 and the beginning of 37. The last three chapters of 1st Isaiah. At the end of 36, just to remind you of where we were, we saw that interesting scene where the Assyrian commander, Rabshakeh, was standing outside the wall making threats against the city of Jerusalem and speaking to Hezekiah, King Hezekiah's representatives, the three men that Hezekiah sent to approach this commander from the wall. Some of the things that Rabshakeh said, you remember he said he was going to empty the city of its people and that he was going to take them off to live in another land. They couldn't uh, defend themselves, their God wouldn't protect them, so on. Uh, Among other things, he probably induced a bit of a a panic uh, in the hearts of the city that heard the message at the wall, though none of them said anything to him as Hezekiah had required. Now the scene moves to Hezekiah. So these representatives that heard all of this at the wall leave, and at the end of 36, we hear that they've gone back to tell Hezekiah what they heard from the Assyrian commander. Then verse 1 of chapter 37. When King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household with Shebna the scribe and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, rebuke, and rejection, for children have come to birth, and there is no strength to deliver. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshekah, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God, and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. Isaiah said to them, Well, thus you shall say to your master, thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. So Hezekiah hears the news from the wall. He realizes the hopelessness of the situation based on what has been reported to him. And what he's really realizing more than anything is that his plans to rely on Egypt as a means of repelling the Assyrians. They've failed, obviously, more than just failed. They've brought Assyria in anger to the walls of Jerusalem, ready to bring retribution against their upheaval, against their rebellion. And as a show of of his mourning and his distress over all of this, he does the traditional Eastern thing. He rips his clothes, literally. He puts on sackcloth, very rough uh, material, one that signified mourning. And he's in this state of mourning, kind of a recognition that there is something to mourn about. And then sends those same diplomatic representatives to Isaiah. So Isaiah becomes the one person he can turn to, it seems, for some kind of help. Now, remember, Isaiah was the one who warned the nation not to seek an alliance with Egypt or else bad things would happen to them. Right. So when Isaiah was speaking with that authority from God to Hezekiah, he was ignored. They went off, they sought to find refuge in the hands of their enemy, Egypt, and more generally in the hands of men. So they didn't go to God, they went to men to solve their problem. Ironically, now that that's failed, they're back at step one, realizing their only hope was to go back to to the Lord. And and you've probably heard more than a few preachers on Sunday make a similar point, right, that the last thing we do is pray, the last thing we do is appeal to God, only after we've tried everything else. How much easier would it be to reverse that is probably the lesson that... You can take from this. So Hezekiah now seems ready, ready, it would appear, to admit his mistakes and to seek Isaiah's counsel, ultimately to seek the Lord's mercy through Isaiah. He describes his current day situation as a day of distress, rebuke and rejection. Now, the distress part, that's obvious, right? They're under distress. The rebuke and rejection part would more than likely refer to God's apparent rebuke of Hezekiah And the rejection of the people of Israel in light of what was apparently about to happen to them. So he's acknowledging that they're being rebuked by God for their sin. That would seem to be what he's saying. If you put the three together and you read into it a little and also take into account the fact that he's in a sackcloth, he's mourning. You can come to the assumption, I think safely, that he's repentant. This is all evidence of a man whose heart has become repentant for what he has gone off and done. Now he's recognized, oh, Isaiah told me this would happen. So here he is looking for Isaiah uh, to bring mercy. So he asks for God's mercy. Look at the basis of it. The basis is not on some self-assessment of merit. He didn't come to him and say, you need to do this for me because we are uh, your people. We are worthy of this or, you know, something to the effect of we need it or we deserve it. The basis for his appeal is God's willingness to defend his own honor his own name, against the blaspheming that had gone on from Rabshakeh. Remember what Rabshakeh was saying, right? He was saying, your God's no better than all these other gods. All these other nations fell when I came into town. Their gods didn't save them. What makes you think this God's going to save you? Then he went a step further and he said, don't let your God deceive you. To suggest, of course, that God lies and tells you he can save you when he can't. So that basis, that was the basis for his appeal. He says... If you're going to do anything, do it so that you can preserve your name against this man who is saying you're no better than the gods of the Canaanites. So Isaiah replies, God has a plan, so don't be afraid, in my own words. God, he says, will send a spirit to the king of Assyria. The spirit will cause uh, the king to think or to have heard a rumor, to think there's a rebellion. And the rumor is specifically that there is, an attack coming from Ethiopia against his homeland and specifically against the capital Nineveh. And so he has to rush back to defend the capital city. That's going to be what he hears. And the fact that it comes through this spirit, the word in Hebrew is ruach, it's breath or spirit. You see in this just clear evidence that God molds or can mold the thoughts and desires of men to suit his purposes. You know, there's other evidence of this, you know, of of other times probably in Scripture where you see similar things happening. But what's so clear about this one is God has decided he needs a man to do something and he will create in the man's mind the need to do that very thing. And yet it turns out to be false. In other words, what he hears is a rumor. He acts on the rumor. But when he gets back there, it turns out there was no such thing. That would suggest to me that the spirit that's being used here is similar to the one that comes upon Saul. Tormenting spirit. In other words, a demonic spirit. God letting the sinful demonic world do as it will, but according to his purpose, in order to bring all things to good for those who love him. Not all good things to good for all people, but all things to good for those who love him. This being, in this case, being Hezekiah and the nation of Israel. So, if anyone would suggest... And I've heard this, and I just want to bring it up in passing because this text deals with it so clearly, this myth. The myth that says God loves us too much to interfere with our free will. Find that in the Bible, please. It's not there. First of all, there's no such thing as true free will in the way that's often meant. We are slaves to sin. The only will we have is to do sin, to, to be an instrument of the enemy, right? We are sons of disobedience until such time as we belong to the Spirit. So our will is captive to the enemy or it's captive to the Spirit, one or the other. Secondly, to say that there's some kind of boundary God won't cross, I mean, where does that come up in Scripture? We made that up. We decided we preferred that. Our own pride decided that a better God would not come in and interfere with our free will. When Scripture says, to the contrary, God will do whatever God wants to do, that's why we call him God. And in this case, he needed this man to do what he did and created the circumstances in his mind to ensure that he would do it. That's what it means to be God. If that offends, then what you're experiencing in the moment is what happens when fleshly pride comes up against sovereign God. It offends us. We don't like it at first. And that's the first step to conviction and to to holiness. But you have to let yourself accept the fact that there is a God who can do things you may not prefer. That's the sin of the garden right there. We would prefer to be him, not have to follow him. And that's the nature that we wrestle with this side of heaven. So here you see clear evidence of doing what he needs to do to accomplish his will. And he takes advantage of this man for his purposes, using what I would assume is a demonic spirit to do it. All to good. Now, when the king hears the report, historically, we know he does return to the land. He does die by the sword. We'll talk more in a little while about how that happens. Back to the text, though, at this point. Verse 8. Then Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lashish, When he heard them them say concerning Terhaka, the king of Cush, he has come out to fight you. And when when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying, Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the king of Assyria has done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be spared? Did the gods of those nations, which my fathers have destroyed, Deliver them, even Gozan and Haran and Rezeph and the sons of Eden who were in Telasar. Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sephavaim and of Hena and Eva? So this is more of the same, right? Rabshakeh, the commander of the army, he goes back now from the wall to the king of Assyria. And he's basically going back empty handed. Remember, the guy's mission was to go to the wall and talk them out, as it were, because... If he's not able to persuade the city of Jerusalem to surrender, they're going to have to attack it. And Jerusalem was at least one of the best defended cities in that time in the ancient world. It was no easy task to break through that wall. They weren't looking forward to that if they could avoid it. So the Assyrians wanted to avoid the siege and Rabshakeh was trying to accomplish that end and failed. So he goes back, finds the king of Assyria, we're told here, fighting in the Shephelah. You know, the Shephelah is that area of a valley just southwest of Jerusalem and it's between the sea and and the Wilderness Mountains. In that area they call the Shephelah, you have these towns he mentions, Libna, Lashish. Libna was about 20 miles, if you look on the map, it's about 20 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And then Lashish is another seven and a half miles southwest after that. They're kind of in a line southwest from Jerusalem. So by the references here, we get a picture that the king was out in the countryside fighting other cities and defeating Judah wherever they could find them. So they were taking him city by city. He had sent Rabshakeh into Jerusalem to try to get that city to surrender, even as they defeated other cities around in the Shephelah. He had already defeated Lashish. He had moved to Livna, was in the process of battling at Lebna when he receives Rabsheka. Rabshakeh comes back to meet him in the field. Then in verse 9, we see the moment when the king hears that rumor that God said he would hear the rumor that's going to draw him away from this fighting in the Shephelah and from ever going to Jerusalem. There's no record that Sennacherib ever went to the wall of Jerusalem. So he never even gets there. He hears about the rumor at this point, and he's going to go back, it says, because Terhaka, the king of Ethiopia, is preparing to attack Nineveh. And so he's going to run back to defend his capital city. As I said already, there is no such attack coming. He goes back, finds nothing, lives in the city for another 20 years, only to be assassinated at a later point in his temple while he's praying to his false god. Now, what's interesting or ironic about that is if you know how this chapter ends, what is Hezekiah famously seen doing later in this chapter? Taking the letter that he's received and going to the temple and spreading it out before the Lord. So while one king dies in his temple praying to a false god, the other king is saved by praying to the real god in his temple. There's a nice little contrast built into this chapter for us there. Meanwhile as the king prepares for this trip back to Nineveh we see in the chapter here that I've read Sennacherib writing his own letter to Hezekiah. So think of it like this. Rabshakeh went, made his appeal, comes back, tells the king no dice. King says let me just do it myself. I should have known better. If I want the job done I've got to do it myself. So he writes his own letter to Hezekiah, hands it to Rabshakeh take this back to him. See if this gets them to surrender. Meanwhile i got to go back to Nineveh. So, the letter is carried by Rabshakeh, and you hear the contents of it. It's virtually the same contents. It conveys the same story. Other nations, they stood no chance. They died. They couldn't stop us. Their gods did them no good. Why is the Jewish God going to do you any better? He says, your God is deceiving you again. So, then in verse 14, the letter comes to Hezekiah. Verse 14, then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord, Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, saying, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and listen to all the words of Sennacherib, who sent them to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from this from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, Lord, are God. This is one of the most iconic scenes, I think, in the Old Testament. Certainly many people, I think, have heard of this or maybe you know, heard it preached sometimes from the pulpit. As I mentioned earlier, you know this idea of him spreading this letter out before the Lord and praying to him, it's very, it just carries a lot of imagery, very powerful imagery, and it's commonly one that I've heard taught. Some know this about Hezekiah and nothing else about the man. This is their one experience with him, if they've never studied it, of course. I would say also that many Christians have probably, many Christians have probably repeated this scene in some form or fashion in their own life, maybe in part because they remember this story and they wonder if this is not the right way to approach God in, in certain circumstances. People who may have a, a past due bill they can't pay or a medical report that's, that's bad news or some other kind of monumental decision or, and they, they go before the Lord and is it were spread out something in front of Him? People do that. I've heard people who said, I, I had this situation and they took it before the Lord, praying for the Lord, praying for His protection or His provision. Now, before we turn what He's doing here into a ritual of some sort, Let's examine the specifics of what he does and why, and then we can see if there's some parallel for our own sake. First, he goes to the house of the Lord. Now, on that day, that's the temple. The point is, he's going to seek the Lord, and you found him, if you will. You localized him to his temple in that day, the Shekinah glory, or you go to where he was in his temple. He spreads the letter out, and he seeks the Lord's intervention. Now, it's worth noting here, as we look at this, that this is both what his father, Ahaz, and he himself should have done in the first place. With both the circumstances Ahaz found himself in, when he was trying to figure out what to do about the, the northern kingdom and, and Syria and their attacks and so on, and of course, again, Hezekiah, when he was facing Assyria in the land, both of them had the chance to do this the first time out, but didn't. Finally, now Hezekiah does. So the first thing to note about Hezekiah's approach is that he goes before the Lord, seeking him, and he does so with the express purpose to seek his counsel and his intervention. The second thing Hezekiah does here is he prays a prayer, not merely of petition, but of repentance. He is acknowledging his own culpability in the circumstances and principally the, the culpability of not having sought him first. It's not explicit in the words, it's not explicit, but it's implicit from the point of view that he went to Isaiah first already, he's in sackcloth. There's a whole countenance change for this man that suggests he's on a different line of thinking than he had been up till this point. In Isaiah's day, we said already that the Jewish people were under judgment. First, because of Ahaz's mistake and his rejection of Isaiah's word, of God's word through Isaiah concerning the Assyrians. We studied that many chapters ago. And then now in Hezekiah's day, they've, they've come under even greater judgment God has turned the heat up a little bit because their present-day leader, Hezekiah, entered into a covenant with Egypt. So the first mistake was Ahaz seeking the alliance of Assyria against Syria and northern kingdom of Israel. That's what brought Assyria into the land to begin with. The second mistake was Hezekiah saying now that they are in the land, instead of sitting tight and accepting God's judgment, he went to Egypt looking for an ally, repeated his father's mistake, God turned the heat up even worse. But remember, this, is, this entire story foretells the story of the Jews in tribulation. For example, the Jewish people today are under a time of judgment from an earlier mistake of their leadership, specifically in the way that their earlier leaders rejected God's prophet, not Isaiah now, but Christ, who coming as prophet in his first day brought the word of the Lord, the news of salvation, the gospel. They rejected that. So they now come under a period of judgment that began in AD 70 and continues until today. They're, They're hardened and they're set outside the opportunity to know the gospel for this period. And that's been the status more or less for the last 2000 years. Now, just as with the earlier incident with Hezekiah, there will come a day when this nation of Jews, as it exists in a future day, will come under even greater judgment because new leaders come to power and make similar mistakes again, entering into a covenant now with the Antichrist. We've covered all this, but I'm reviewing it again because there is another parallel building here as well in this part of the story. We're seeing here the beginning of it in this scene with Hezekiah. When the pressure of that second greater judgment starts to take hold, as it did here with Hezekiah in his day, when it starts to take hold with the Jews of tribulation after they make that covenant with the Antichrist, it's going to ultimately bring them to a repentant confession, much like the one you see Hezekiah having here, and a confession in which they not only acknowledge their own mistakes, if you will, their own lack of recognition for who the Messiah was and who the Antichrist was, on that, for that matter, but they go a step further. They repent of their father's mistakes as well, which is also what Hezekiah is going to do here. In verse 16, Hezekiah says, God is God alone above everything he created. Then Hezekiah asks God to incline his ear to listen to the words of the king, of the blasphemous king of Assyria, and how that king was able to destroy so many other nations and and all their gods were not real, which is why they were able to be conquered. And his argument to God is a a really powerful one. He says to God, my own words here, now is the perfect opportunity to show the world you are the one true God. Because all the other gods have been destroyed. They've all been shown to be nothing. Assyria wasn't stopped by any of them, which, of course, makes sense. They're just wood and stone. Now's the chance. If you let them come in and roll over us, people will see you as no more powerful than those other gods. But if you can stop them here, then the world knows you are the God and God alone because no one else could stop them. It's all been set up for you perfectly. You just have to come through and you'll show yourself to be God. Now, he's not saying it quite that way, right? He's speaking to God in a respectful, reverential way, asking God to be Their support and their escape from this, but he's appealing to God's character and nature, not to some personal petty self-interest out of the thing. That's the second lesson here. If you're going to repeat Hezekiah's pattern, make sure that what you're spreading out before the Lord is consistent with what honors and glorifies him, at least as much as you think it's benefiting you yourself. Now, you hope that they're aligned, right? You hope that what you want is what God wants, and that may be the only way you know how to pray, and that's fine. But understand that what made this prayer powerful and successful, I would argue, is how it brought God's glory and purpose back to the foreground and put his in the background. Remember, we've, we've talked about prayer here on Times Past. It'll actually come up again tonight in a minute, but the nature of prayer is it aligns us with God's will. It doesn't change God's mind. Now, that'll come up again here in chapter 38 in an interesting way, but I mentioned earlier there's this building parallel that while all along we've seen these parallels between these events and what will come later in tribulation, hopefully you agree they're pretty eerie, they're pretty remarkable how similarly the two worlds are going to match up. Here's another one, and that's this issue of the prayer. In the way Hezekiah calls out to the Lord, he's reversing two generations of mistakes, his own and his father's, both tracing to the same problem, not listening to God, not trusting God to take care of the Assyrian problem. Trying to take care of the Assyrian problem themselves was the mistake both of those kings made. He's if you will, repenting on behalf of both by turning to God and saying, OK, God, we give up. It's your turn. You, you solve this problem. God promised that the nation of Israel would see a similar restoration, ultimately in tribulation, if they made a similar kind of prayer, meaning they appealed both for the sake of themselves and for their forefathers. It's actually recorded in Leviticus. That's how far back this goes. In Leviticus 26, verse 40, Moses talking to the people of Israel, but it's in the context of having told them you are going to make lots of mistakes and you're going to ignore all these commandments. And when you do, God is going to put you under the curses that are in the law. And then he says at a point in Leviticus 26, there is hope for you, even though you will have violated the law and you will be under all this judgment. Verse 40 of Leviticus 26. Listen to what he says. If they Now, he's talking to people in the nation of Israel, but he talks about a third person, they. So he's not talking about them in their day. He's talking about a future group of Jews. He says, If they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their forefathers in their unfaithfulness which they committed against me and also in their acting with hostility against me, verse 42, Then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and I will remember also my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham as well. And I will remember the land. Now, this is all spoken in the context of the Mosaic covenant, the conditional covenant. Do these things. Good things happen. Don't do these things. Bad things happen. Then he says, oh, but if in the future, they, the nation of Israel, as they exist in a future day, if they confess their iniquity and their forefathers iniquity, He says, then I will remember, not this covenant, but a different covenant, one that is unconditional. The Abrahamic. So, the call of the Jewish nation to repent isn't merely one of repenting of their own mistakes, but it must acknowledge the mistakes of their forefathers. Now, that's interesting in one way more than any other. When you are called to repent, maybe for the sake of belief in the gospel, as we would say today, repent and believe, we don't expect someone's repentance to cover Acts of their fathers, right? That's not a biblical expectation. We don't say we have to not only repent of your own sin, but you have to somehow cover the sin of your forefathers. No, that's not an expectation of Scripture. Why would God attach that here? Because it's regarding a specific mistake. It's not general. It's not even discussed at this point in the text. It's not given to us here in Leviticus, but it's given to us later. We understand later that the chief sin that the nation of Israel committed which put them in this time of judgment to begin with, in a situation where they had to confess and needed God's help, was the sin of rejecting their Messiah. And that sin, having been committed through the agency of their leadership, put the whole nation in the time of judgment, which continues until today, which will continue into tribulation and be made worse in tribulation because the leaders of Israel in that day make it worse with their covenant with the Antichrist. But ultimately, he resolves both their sin in that covenant with the Antichrist and he resolves the sin of their forefathers who rejected Christ in a single moment. A moment we've already talked about here several times. Remember, Zechariah 12, at the point when the nation of Israel is in Jerusalem and they are under the pressure cooker of the Antichrist's armies and they cry out to Christ and that's what brings Christ back for them. But look at one verse. We've read it several times, but now listen to it in the context of this confession both of us and of our forefathers listen to it verse 10 of chapter 12 in Zechariah I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn think about that when do these people live their future from us even, right? So they're, they're in the future from us even. And this is saying that when they come to this moment of repentance, what did they express regret over? Crucifying Christ. They couldn't have been the ones to crucify Christ. They're thousands of years after that moment in their own life. Why are they taking it upon themselves to confess that sin? Because they are confessing their sin in conjunction with the sin of their forefathers, the nation's sin in rejecting the Messiah. That's effectively the same thing that Leviticus 26 just said has to happen. Confess, confess your sin and the sin of your forefathers. This sin of putting the Messiah to death. That's the basis of their confession. And therefore, the parallel now is easy to see. The final moment of confession for the nation of Israel includes the confession not only of their sins, but of the sins of their forefathers in the act they committed against Christ. And I'll give you the final proof. I love this one. Remember, I've told you here a couple of times, Psalms... 79 and 80 are the text of the prayer. When the nation of Israel is brought to that moment of repentance in the time of tribulation, what they actually say is it's just summarized in Zechariah. It's just referenced. They will pray or they will call out on the Lord. That's all that's said in Zechariah. But the actual words they will use, more or less, I guess, are in Psalms 79 and 80. Those two Psalms together are the prayer of confession that the Jews give during that last moment. I'm going to read you just six verses out of that just to give you a sense of it. But look what they say in the midst of their prayer. Psalm 79, verse 5. How long, O Lord, will you be angry? Forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath upon the nations which do not know you and upon the kingdoms which do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and they lay waste his habitation. Do not remember the iniquity of our forefathers against us. Let your compassion come quickly to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, and deliver us and forgive our sins for your name's sake. Now did you notice two things. First, that forefathers reference. Here's the proof that that's a that's a part of what they're praying in that moment. They're praying that their forefathers' sin would be forgiven, which is what God said they have to do in Leviticus. But you know, it's also the basis for their appeal, the same basis that Hezekiah had in verse nine, for the glory of your name, for the sake of your name, come and rescue us. The parallels are there. Hezekiah going into the temple, spreading out this letter and calling on God in the eleventh hour to defend them on the basis of his own name and in recognition of his repentance for himself and what his father did. That scene is a, is a small picture, if you will, of what's going to happen in a larger context for the nation of Israel in tribulation. It all lines up. In this moment, I, in this moment here in Isaiah, this same kind of comprehensive confession is happening and then a call for God to defend his honor. And now we get to God's response in verse 21 of Isaiah 37. So back to 37, verse 21. Then Isaiah the son of Amos sent word to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Israel, this is the word that the Lord has spoken against him. Quote, She has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She has shaken her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem. Whom have you reproached and blasphemed, and against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted lifted up your eyes? Against the Holy One of Israel. Through your servants, you have reproached the Lord. And you have said, with my many chariots, I came up to the heights of the mountains, to the remotest parts of Lebanon, and I cut down its tall cedars and its choice cypresses, and I will go to its highest peak, its thickest forest. I dug wells and drank waters, and with the sole of my feet, I dried up the rivers of Egypt. Well, have you not heard? Long ago, I did it. From ancient times, I planned it. Now, I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. Therefore, their inhabitants were short of strength. They were dismayed and put to shame. They were as the vegetation of the field and as the green herb, as grass on the housetops is scorched before it is grown up. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against me because of your raging against me and because your arrogance has come to my ears. Therefore, I will put my hooks in your nose and my bridle in your lips and I will turn you back by the way which you came. Then this shall be the sign for you. You will eat this year what grows of itself, in the second year what springs from the same, and in the third year sow, reap, and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. The surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he will not come to this city or shoot an arrow there. He will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, by the same he will return. And he will not come to this city, declares the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servants David's sake. A great passage. We can summarize it because I think it's fairly easy to follow. Maybe a couple of moments in there you might have lost track of who was talking. So we'll cover that. It starts with God answering Hezekiah through Isaiah in the same way that he tried to instruct Hezekiah the first time through Isaiah, now he's finally getting a hearing, the the, sum effect of everything is the king's plans are not going to have their effect. They're going to fail. So, is not going to do what he says he's going to do. Ultimately, Zion or Jerusalem is going to laugh at him for his attempt. He's going to fail principally because of his pride. Now, remember how the whole thing started many chapters ago. Assyria was called down by God into the northern kingdom to deal with their sin. And the king was so prideful about what he could do and how well it was working, he just kept rolling down. He never stopped at the border like God had intended or or desired. And then as he became more prideful and more ambitious, God said that became his undoing and his reason for, for God taking this judgment against him. Though he still made use of it for a time to chastise Judah. So at this point, he's done with the chastisement. He's ready to show judgment against Assyria. And he says, he quotes the king and all that the king was saying about, look how good I am. Look how powerful we are. You can beat everybody. No one can stop us. And God says, well, you know why? Because I made it that way. In fact, I purposed it from long ago. It was always to be this way. I made it be this way. So in other words, you had no power apart from me, which is really a truth statement for every human being in anything that happens. I think that's also, by the way, in passing, one of the reasons why the New Testament makes it clear that Christians are always to be in subjection to the authorities they have, whether in the church or in the government, whether you like them or not, whether they're doing the right things or not, because ultimately they have no power apart from God. You know, in other words, you you may not be able to understand it all, certainly, and and that's not surprising, but that doesn't mean our lack of understanding gives us the right to replace what God says should happen with what we think should happen. That's ultimately what the, the mistake Hezekiah made, right? I mean, we could have been Hezekiah, looked at the surrounding circumstances and said, well, doing nothing makes no sense. We've got an army in our land and we've got to defend ourselves and we have to make choices and do things. And Hezekiah said, no, you need to sit there and take it. And Hezekiah's thought in the moment was, that makes no sense. Or whatever he thought, it wasn't what he wanted. And this whole scene as he's relating what Sennacherib thought and what God says in response, gives evidence for us to remember that there is no power in men that, that God does not at least make possible possible you know, channel and direct, however you want to see him at work. So to stand in the way of that is just to get rolled over ultimately. What if I'm in the in, in Nazi Germany and they're telling me I have to kill babies? You know, am I supposed to do what the government said? Well, no, there's obviously limits to what we ourselves will do. But you remember our Romans class? Paul never said that we had to subject ourselves to the government in obedience. We can subject to ourselves to the government in disobedience. Remember? He said you can say no to their instructions and then accept the punishment that comes for saying no, whether it means getting thrown to the lions or going into prison for your whole life. That's subjecting yourself to the government, but holding to your understanding of God's word in your life and to his his will for your life. It's no less subjecting yourself to government if you accept what comes as a consequence. And that's how Paul expressed the meaning of subjection. To death if necessary, not in rebellion against the government though. See, that's the difference. They went to the lions. They didn't fight against the Roman soldiers who were dragging them to the lions. You see the difference? So they could accept that the rule was worship Caesar or go to the lions. They said, okay, we'll go to the lions. Not choice number three, I'm going to fight you. That's not subjection. Because in the end, what was God's purpose? That there would be martyrdom, which in in turn strengthened the church and spread it outside of Jerusalem. Our bodies are his. He says to live is to, to live for Christ. To die is to die for Christ. It doesn't really matter which one happens. Not if you have eyes for eternity. Now, back to the text here. In verse 29, he says he will bring punishment upon Assyria. They will return defeated. And then in verse 30, Isaiah gives Judah this sign of confidence in God's word. He says, the Jews today are eating what grew on its own. Now, that's a reference to the fact that the the effect of having Assyria in their land was to prevent them from going about normal agricultural work. They couldn't go out into the fields, plow up the field, sow the field, plant the field, be ready for it to harvest in the next year that whole cycle had been broken because of the disruption of the armies around the city and so on so god is promising them you will have enough to eat just living off of the land what grows naturally this year and of course if you can't plant this year there won't be anything to eat next year either so he's saying this year and next year i will ensure you have enough to eat but by the third year you'll be out there planting again that's my sign to you or my statement to you assuring you that this is all going to go away and you'll be fine life will come back to normal so it's a way of saying Normal life will return. Then in verse 32, he promises Israel will go forth from Zion under the Lord's protection. The king, he says, won't even come to the city. And of course, we already said historically that's exactly what happened. He never even came into the city or came to the wall, never attacked it. Now, the last verse I read, why does he say he will do all this? It ties back to the prayer, making clear what was important to God in the context of Hezekiah's appeal. For my name's sake, he says, right? And secondly, he says, for the sake of my servant David. What does that tell us? He committed through David that there would always be someone in the line of David on the throne in Judah, in Jerusalem. Until such time as the full prophetic meaning of that is fulfilled. David meaning Christ coming to, to rule on the throne. So until Christ came as Messiah, there would always be someone in the line of David on the throne in In succession. And then there's a third aspect of this here, of course, and that is Christ coming in the city. You've got to have Jerusalem if you're going to have Christ die on the cross in Jerusalem. So he's promising for David and for the sake of what he promised to David that that's all going to take place. So he's defending his honor. Then verse 36. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. It came about, as he was worshipping in the house of Nishroch his god, that Amadremelech and Sherazer, his sons, killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat. And Eshardan, his son, became king in his place. Now, verse 36-37, just understand, Sennacherib doesn't see the destruction of his army and then leave. He's already left. He never went to the city. The, the one happened and then the other. In this scene, the army is wiped out, and We first recognize who it is doing it here, right? The angel of the Lord we've talked about already is Christ, pre-incarnate Christ. Another parallel to what we know happens in tribulation for the Jews, the parallel between this moment and the future moment. How is the army of the Antichrist finally destroyed as they surround Jerusalem? By Christ's return, by the sword of his mouth, as as Revelation would describe it. The best uh, explanation I've found, uh, from history anyway, is the ancient Greek historian Herodias wrote about this. Now, interestingly, the Assyrians didn't record anything about it, which is not unusual for them. Their official records never recorded any defeats or bad news about the king, and yet they're gone. (laughs) The only record that you see of of Sennacherib's uh, exploits in Judah records his defeat of 40-something cities and how he terrorized the people of Jerusalem. I mean, there's some vague reference to him doing bad things there, but never destroying the city. That's never mentioned, of course, because it doesn't happen. And no mention of how his army gets wiped out. It just, it's, it's absent those details. But we know that that was not un, uncommon for them. They didn't like to record bad news. But Herodias didn't have that problem. He talks about a wiping out of roughly the same number, about 180,000 troops dying outside of Jerusalem. He attributes it to a horde of mice that descended upon the army in the camp, which then led to bubonic plague. So they didn't call it bubonic plague, but we know that that's the disease they were likely describing. And that would be consistent with rodents. Does that remove the supernatural component of it all? Of course not. But we're saying that it is certainly possible that the way the angel of the Lord carried out the attack could have been something like this, something that was miraculous in in the sense that you would never expect a horde of of rats to show up on cue against 200,000 men at the right moment. But the fact that he did it this way doesn't lessen him in power. It just shows that's maybe the method. Now, of course, Herodotus is not Scripture, so maybe it had nothing to do with it. So now, with chapter 37 concluded, Isaiah now moves backward in time. Just a little bit, but he moves backward. The first question you'll have is, well, why? Well, because he's presenting a prologue, something that occurred before the events of chapters 36 and 37. In those two chapters, if 1st Isaiah ended at the end of chapter 37, you might be tempted to conclude that it ends like every Hollywood movie ends, right? A happy ending. The army is defeated. Hezekiah comes back. He's a good guy again. You know, the sun sets on Jerusalem singing hand in hand, and it's something like the end of a movie. And I think his intent here is to make clear that even though these next two chapters happened before those events... They give you enough of an indication about what's coming next that they take away the happy ending. So he puts this whole scene, these two chapters, at the end in in the order he writes. So it's the last thing you hear, making clear to you that the ending is not supposed to be happy. But it actually records events that came a little earlier. And the text itself will show you that they came earlier. It's an attempt here to make clear that there is still yet not restoration and glory for the nation of Israel. They are still in trouble. So look at verse 38, or chapter 38, verse 1, and I'll build on this as we go, and you'll see it, I hope, with me. In those days, Hezekiah became mortally ill. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you. Now I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. That opening phrase, in those days, it helps us begin to see that this is moving the narrative out of the immediate context, the immediate moment of a serious siege. And yet, it tells us it's somewhat about the same time. So it's not years earlier. In fact, Hezekiah, we know, dies in 686 BC. So 686 BC is when he dies. You'll know when we get a little further into this story that he's about to get a reprieve from God concerning this death warrant, how long does he get reprieved for? 15 years. So, if he dies in 686 B.C., and this scene is going to add 15 years to his life, that means this scene is happening in 701 B.C. The Assyrian siege of Jerusalem occurred in 701 B.C. So, in the same year that the siege is taking place, he has this experience. Now we just have to figure out which one came first. They're clearly in about the same time but one had to happen before the other. Can we tell which one happens first? Well, what did chapter 37 end with? The army dead. He's already covered the army being wiped out. If chapter 38 happened after chapter 37 in, in chronology, in other words, if he gets sick after the battle's over, then when we look a little further down here, verse 6, just to jump there for a second. I will deliver you and the city from the hand of the king of Syria, and I will defend the city. That phrase makes no sense if this happened after. He can only make that statement if the siege is still going on. So this whole scene takes place in the same year of the siege, while it's going on, but before it's resolved, as you saw in chapter 37, before he goes to the temple, before he lays it out in front of the Lord. So this is just a little earlier than that. But Isaiah obviously wants you to hear this last. There's something about this whole scene, and it goes into chapter 39. You need to know as you remember the end of Hezekiah and the end of First Isaiah. All right, so back into the events here. Hezekiah is dying. God declares through Isaiah that this illness will kill him. I love the way he says it, right? You shall die and not live, just in case you're wondering. Hezekiah is dying. He says, set your house in order. Now, what that literally means is at least two things. First, your will and testament needs to be written. You need to assign the inheritance of your of your family's possessions and all of that, kind of set up your will. But in this case, Hezekiah's got no kids at this point in time, so he has to assign a successor. That's probably the more important of the two things he has to do at this point. Figure out who's going to follow you in the line of succession. And then as Isaiah leaves, he leaves the room with this drop in this bombshell, walks out. Hezekiah then, we're told, turns to the wall, and I, I think the sense here is one of, just going into a private moment and praying to the Lord over this news. He makes an appeal here for mercy. Now, what's the basis of his appeal here? The basis of his appeal here is his own godly walk with God. Second Chronicles, when it relates to the same story, affirms that he was a godly king. Some would argue that the descriptions in 2 Chronicles would appear to suggest he was even more so than David. But where you rank him in, the, in, in terms of godliness among Judah kings Regardless of that, he's not an apostate king. He's he's considered one of the better kings, obviously. So it's not entirely wrong for him to say these things, but it's an interesting appeal. And in some respects, I guess it's the only one you'd make if you were him, right? I want to walk with you and serve you more. Let me live longer. That's kind of what he's implying at this point. Then in response to that simple prayer, verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that he has spoken. Behold, I will cause the shadow on the stairway, which has gone down with the sun on the stairway of Ahaz, to go back 10 steps. So the sun's shadow went back 10 steps on the stairway on which it had gone down. So his response to to Hezekiah is couched in terms of David again. He calls himself the God of your father, David. You you don't reference David like that routinely in Scripture as God. You don't see him saying that about himself routinely. He only invokes that when he wants to make a point about his motives, I think. And his motives here are honoring David and the covenant that was made with David concerning the kingship. What's the problem with Hezekiah dying right now? No kings to follow him. He would have cut off the line of David. He's not going to do that, which begs a question, why did he have Isaiah show up in the first place and say, you're certainly going to die and you will not live? It seems funny, right? Like he was never likely to do that or it seems to suggest that right in those 15 years that will follow from this moment, Hezekiah is going to have sons and he's going to be able to perpetuate the line of David. In fact, Hezekiah's son is 12 when he begins ruling and Hezekiah himself dies the next year, so his son is born soon after this moment, within a year after this moment. And, or three years, I guess, technically after this moment. So God also, as you notice, includes in this the promise to spare the city from Assyria. Now, was he not going to spare the city from Assyria had this prayer not happened? I mean, you know, you can't imagine that taking place either, right? This all gives further evidence to tell us that God's purpose in acting here, was for the sake of David, ultimately for the sake of his son, who would come as king in the future. And it begs the question, what does it say about Hezekiah's prayer? Did his prayer change anything? Now, the first reading of the text, you might have come away with that view, right? God says, you're going to die. Hezekiah says, please, no. God says, oh, okay, 15 more years. Like a parent would, right? To a child who doesn't like the first thing he hears. But... It seems that this scene is actually more similar, more likely to be compared to the one of Abraham praying on behalf of Lot in the city of Sodom back in Genesis 18. Without going through that whole story for the sake of time, it's clear enough as you study it that God always intended to do what he did. In fact, New Testament commentary tells us that Lot was a righteous man and God was prepared to save the righteous. He knows how to do that. He's not incapable of doing that. And so he was always intending that as he destroyed the ungodly in Sodom, he would save the righteous in the process. But in the way he introduces the whole idea to Abraham, the whole circumstance to Abraham, he does it in such a way that prompts Abraham to pray on behalf of those people, on behalf of Lot and his family, to get engaged with God as God reveals to him his plans. But never with the intent that that would change God's plans, but rather that it would show something about God to Abraham and allow Abraham to be a partner in that process through prayer to understand God's will. Similarly here, why did God let Hezekiah know he was going to die? Does God do that routinely? By the way, get ready. You're about to die. I mean, it never happens. It's a surprise, right? That's the whole nature of death. You never know. And yet he does that here for Hezekiah. That's weird all by itself. That's strange. It begs a question, what? The only logical answer is is the same basis for why he let Abraham know he was about to go destroy Sodom. So that Hezekiah would pray. And in the prayer, seek God's mercy. And in the course of doing that, it would be an opportunity for God to reveal something about his character and his nature to Hezekiah in advance of the circumstances. It's mercy he already intended to grant, right? He already intended to save the city. He already intended to let Hezekiah have children because he made a promise to David there would be a line that didn't break. Much like he granted Abraham the opportunity to pray for Lot to be spared. So then God offers Hezekiah the opportunity here to seek a sign. Now, what's interesting here is Isaiah doesn't show you that. Isaiah just says, then God gave a sign, right? But actually, if you go to the same account, the same story in its account in 2 Kings, you hear this, that God actually offered a chance for a sign, or said differently, Hezekiah asks for the chance to select a sign. Remember, Hezekiah's father, Ahaz, was the guy who had a similar opportunity to receive a sign, a convincing sign from God that God was going to protect them from the Assyrians. And what did he do when he had that chance? He said, no, far be it from me to ever want to ask a sign from God. I don't want to test you. And it was just pious nonsense. He just didn't want a sign because he didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. Here, in this case, Hezekiah takes a different path. But in 2 Kings 20 is where you'll find the story. 2 Kings 20, verse 8. Now, Hezekiah said to Isaiah what will be the sign that the Lord will heal me, that I shall go up to the house of the Lord the third day? Isaiah said, this shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that he has spoken. And then Isaiah gives him a choice. He says, shall the shadow go forward ten steps or back ten steps? So, even though Hezekiah raised the the whole idea of a sign, it still took the form of a question when it was finally offered. Would you like a sign of, 10 steps forward on the the shadow or 10 steps back. In that way, it became similar to Ahaz. Ahaz had a choice. What sign would you like? Ahaz said, oh, I don't want anything. So Hezekiah is put under a circumstance where he can either repeat his father's mistake or he can do better. In this case, he did better. Hezekiah said, it's easy for the... I love the the logic here. It's totally bogus logic, but it sounds good at first. He says, it is easy for the shadow to decline 10 steps. No, but let the shadow turn backward 10 steps. Isaiah the prophet cried to the Lord, and he brought the shadow on the stairway back, ten steps, by which it had gone down. What's funny about that is, why is it easier for it to suddenly move ten steps forward than it is for it to move back ten steps? Neither is natural. It's the Gideon thing. Gideon says, one wet, one dry. And he gets his answer, and he's like, well, maybe that's a coincidence. Maybe we'll just turn it around. Then if it happens in reverse, I know it's God. I think that's the logic here, is maybe it'll go forward ten steps, but it'll go so slowly, I won't know if it was God or just natural, Right? So 10, going backward, 10 tells me it's got to be God. So he's looking for certainty in the sign. So he asks for it. He gets it. So in response to his request, God moves the shadow, which then prompts Hezekiah to speak in the text. So the last thing I think we'll end up doing tonight, maybe we'll see. But chapter 38, verse 9, this is Hezekiah's own words. This is the longest um, uh, self-authored praise in the Old Testament outside of the Psalms by any Judah king. A writing of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, after his illness and recovery. I said, in the middle of my life, I am to enter the gates of Sheol. I am to be deprived of the rest of my years. I said, I will not see the Lord, the Lord, in the land of the living. I will look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. Like a shepherd's tent, my dwelling is pulled up and removed from me. As a weaver, I rolled up my life. It cuts me off from the loom. From day until night, you make an end of me. I composed my soul until morning. Like a a lion, so he breaks all my bones from day until night, you make an end of me like a swallow, like a crane. So I Twitter. They did it even back then. I moan like a dove. My eyes look wistfully to the heights. Oh, Lord, I am oppressed. You know, that wasn't as funny about three years ago because it didn't make any sense back then. My eyes look wistfully to the heights. O oh, Lord, I'm oppressed. Be my security. What shall I say? For he has spoken to me and he himself has done it. I will wander about all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these is the life of my spirit. O, restore me to health and let me live. Lo, for my welfare I had great bitterness. It is you who has kept my soul from the pit of nothingness, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. It is the living who give thanks to you as I do today. A father tells his sons about your faithfulness. The Lord will surely save me. So we will play my songs on stringed instruments all the days of our life at the house of the Lord. Now, Isaiah Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. Then Hezekiah had said, what is the sign that I should go up to the house of the Lord? Interesting. Let's look at that. Just briefly look at that structure here. This is for future reference. You may find this interesting on your own. Remember chiasms? There's a chiasm here in this prayer, chiastic structure, a walking in on one thought and a walking out in opposite thought. The walking in is one of the death and the sorrow. Uh, Look at the contrast here. Verse 10, it begins with references to gates of Sheol and sorrow at the prospect of shortened days. But the contrast is at the opposite end in verse 20. The reference to the house of the Lord and joy at the prospect of lengthened days. Verse 11 Going back up, the king began by referring to the land of the living being exchanged for the departed. He leaves the land of the living, goes to the departed place. But then in verses 18 and 19, he reverses that. He ends with this reference to the land of the departed exchanged for the land of the living. Similarly, 12 and 14 are contrasted with 15 and 17. The hostility of God with the restoration of God. I mean, It's just a clear pattern there back and forth. What do you make of verses 21 and 22? Here's where the whole idea of him putting this story at the end, not back where it belonged chronologically. Here's where it starts to really show. Because up till now, there's really not been much there to work with. It's just Hezekiah going through this experience. He seems to do well. He takes the news, gets sad, prays, gets healed, praises God. Right? Nothing much there. But look at how Isaiah throws a couple of thoughts there at the very end. Verses 21 and 22 don't seem to fit, do they? They seem like they should have been at the beginning of the story because that's what they're describing. What happened at the beginning of the story? In the beginning, Isaiah must have said at some point, here's how God is going to heal you now that he's decided to give you back your 15 years. We're going to put this cake of figs and put it on the boil. Well, whatever he had obviously involved boils. And he says, here's some figs, stick it on your boil. And then what does Hezekiah say? Uh, Can you give me a sign that this is going to work? I mean, I trust you and I like the whole 15 year thing. That sounds great. But, you know, figs on my boil. I don't know if that's really going to take care of the problem enough here. How about a sign? Does that sound like the right approach? That sounds problematic, doesn't it? In the light of how Isaiah highlights it at the very end, after all the praise and happiness and blah, 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 you're reminded of the fact that back in Second Kings where we hear about this whole, do I get a sign question? And okay, you want one going up or you want one going down? That whole scene was begun because when the healing was to take place under the instructions of Isaiah, it prompts it apparently in the mind of Hezekiah a question about whether he can trust this method. It makes them start to seek more assurance of God. It's like the scene in the movie where they've been chasing the bad guy, the bad robotic Terminator, all movie. And then they've killed him 15 different ways from Sunday and he still keeps coming back. And then the last scene, you think he's finally dead and the credits are about to roll. And then the camera cuts in at the very last moment to one of the fingers and it goes. And then it goes black. Right. And you're thinking, oh, the sequel. Right. It's like that. It's like we think we've solved the problem of Hezekiah and all the sin and there everybody's back on track and he's got 15 more glorious years and so on. And then this little sliver of doubt comes back into the text to suggest eh, it's not all so good after all. What meaning does verse 22 have by itself? Why would he add that to the very end of the story? It kind of stands out as irrelevant at that point. It's just a detail in the, in, the, in the story. But it's an important detail because what it suggests about the man's thinking as he asked for the sign. It's in conjunction with Why he asked it? He asked it because he didn't trust the solution that Isaiah was bringing. It introduces again the element that Hezekiah's faithfulness was always rocky, like every man's is. That he was not perfectly wedded to the Lord in faithfulness. He had a he had this side of him that was was not clearly aligned with God's will. And then chapter 39 verse 1. At that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard he had been sick and had recovered. Isn't that thoughtful? Hezekiah was pleased and showed them, them being the representatives of the king of Babylon, all his treasure house, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil and his whole armory and all that was found in his treasuries. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where have they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, what have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There's nothing among my treasuries that I've not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who issue from you whom you will beget will be taken away and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord, which you have spoken is good for he thought, for there will be peace and truth in my days. Here's the danger of knowing you only have 15 years left to live. You can decide that if it happens to someone later, it doesn't matter to me. You see, the man's pride, evident in what he did with the king's messengers, right, is obvious. The pride and the glory in himself and in his power and wealth, really really that's at the core of what he was making mistakes with all along, right? He he valued his own abilities to decide what to do. He valued his own strength and his alliances and covenants and so on. All of that was at the root of the problem to begin with. Now, he had a good moment in chapter 37, which if that had been the end of the story, might have left us with the wrong impression. He's still a, a... fully rounded out character. He's not just all one or all the other, right? He's got good and bad like we all do. And the bad is being highlighted here at the end, not to make him the fall guy, so to speak, but to set up 2nd Isaiah. What is 2nd Isaiah about? If In broad terms, if 1st Isaiah was Assyria and all of their interactions with the nation of Israel, the 2nd Isaiah is all about Babylon. Babylon comes in in 586 BC. He's speaking these words in 701. So There's 186 years or something like that, 184 years in there that that are separating them. So all of 2nd Isaiah is Isaiah projecting himself into the future, speaking as if he were to live in that future day and talking about it in the present tense, but but prophetically speaking about it hundreds of years in advance. But here you see the evidence of why that even happens because the end of this 1st Isaiah leaves you with a man in charge who is so self-absorbed, even to the point where he hears that his own sons are going to be taken captive by this other nation, a nation that will soon rise to power stronger than Assyria. And his first thought is, Phew, at least it doesn't affect me. It's the selfish, in the way that we all share in this, right? It's that incomplete re- regeneration. It's the fact that God's work within the hearts of men is not finished until Christ comes and does that work in the eternal through the, in the messianic kingdom. So this is setting up why there is still more bad to come, why the story couldn't end here, and we say, you know, God's done his work with Israel. It leaves us knowing there's more to the story. So he puts these two chapters at the end to give us that understanding so that chapter 40 becomes understandable in itself. So that's a quick summary of 39 without the blow-by-blow. I think that's clear enough in what we see. So we'll come back in two weeks. We'll start 2nd Isaiah, chapters 40 and onward. It'll go fairly quick. You only have 26 chapters, and I'm moving two or three a week, so you're talking about three months. Is that quick? That seemed quick to me. Three months? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for patience tonight, Father, and thank you for the guidance of the Spirit in our teaching and, and uh, for the opportunity to, to come to an understanding of something that is complex, Father, and, and in some ways burdensome, for it asks a lot of us. But Father, you ask a lot of us so that we may be useful to you in many ways. So I pray that that would be the outcome of our time and study. Thank you for this room, for a church that values your word and lets us teach. And Father, we pray after two weeks of, of a break, we'll come back all the more ready to learn. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.